Now then, let's uh, turn again to the book of Daniel and chapter 1, page 1018, and the very well-known words, the important words of verse 8, which really set a tone for the whole book. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Now, there are many ways in which we can uh, look at the book of Daniel, but so far we've been seeing it as essentially a clash between uh, two worldviews, almost two civilizations, but certainly two worldviews. And these worldviews are represented by two cities. The first is Jerusalem, which has God at its center. That represents a worldview with God at its center. The second city is the city that dominates this book. That's the city of Babylon, which has man at its center. Uh, we've seen that through its association with the Tower of Babel, right back in Genesis 11. It'll become more and more plain as we go through the book. But man is at the center of Babylon. It is a humanistic city and a humanistic worldview. And that really, ultimately, is the great clash in minds and civilizations and worldviews anyway. Ultimately, it is a war or a conflict between a God-centered worldview and a humanistic one. In many ways, I think all idolatry can be reduced to humanism. But uh, I think we could leave that there. Now, we saw uh, over the last few weeks the attempts to conform Daniel and his fellow Jews to the thought processes of Babylon or to Babylon's thought and culture. They were given new names and they were indoctrinated with a new education. But the test as to whether they would actually eat the king's provision for them took matters a step further because by doing so they were going to, quote, defile themselves. In other words, there must have been a, an express commandment not to eat that food because it must have broken the Jewish food laws. We saw that last time. Now, last time particularly, we looked at the pressure on these young men to conform. The pressure was very real, and I think we saw that the pressure was intense. The pressure came from their peers in the university, other students. It also came from their staff and supervisors. The pressure was also very subtle and persuasive because even other young Jewish men who are not to the fore in this book, probably for a reason, they would argue that the issue was not big enough to make a crisis over. It was also not worth losing their career and possible influence by refusing the food. And there was also a danger that it would make their faith look very trivial. 
and just to take a stand on food. Really? Is that what your faith is all about? So the pressure was very real. But the question before us today is how does Daniel respond to that pressure? And I think we can look at his response in two parts. Very straightforwardly, we can look first of all at how he responds inwardly, how he responds in his heart. That's what I want to focus on this morning with you. But tonight, I want to focus on how he responds outwardly. In other words, what he actually does. So how he responds to it in his heart and how he responds in his conduct. Now, as always, we need to begin inwardly. We need to begin in the heart. And that takes us to these immortal words in verse 8 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He purposed in his heart. There's an old chorus which asks us to dare to be a Daniel, to dare to stand alone, to dare to have a purpose firm, and then to dare to make it known. Uh, tonight we'll look at making it known, but first of all, dare to have a purpose firm. He purposed in his heart. It's a very striking phase, phrase. It doesn't tell us that he simply decided something, that he determined something, that he resolved or purposed something, but that he purposed it in his heart. He purposed it in his heart. Now, sometimes when we think of the word heart uh, in the Bible, we tend to think that it focuses somehow on the emotional side of our being. And we tend to distinguish the mind from the heart like that. And if a distinction is made between the mind and the heart, then that's fair enough. And on one or two occasions, you do find that. But normally, particularly in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew, the word heart is much, much wider than the field of emotions. In fact, it really just covers the whole inward person. I think you could say that in the Bible, the heart is the command center of your whole being. It's the command center of your whole being. When you become a Christian, uh, you are given a new heart. God takes away the heart of flesh, that's how Ezekiel words it, and he gives us, uh, and takes away the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a living heart, that's what that means there. A new heart, a new command center. There's a, a revolution that goes on in there. And from that point onwards, your heart is what the Bible calls pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, you may struggle sometimes with that description of your heart as a Christian. But the word purity there just means that your heart has been cleansed. Um, it has been unified. I'll come to that in a second. There is a singleness of purpose and uh, a single desire to please and to honor God. That is your motive. Your heart is now pure. You live for him and not for yourself. It doesn't, of course, mean that there's nothing unclean in your heart at all. But nonetheless, the Bible speaks of our heart as pure. But then again, the Bible tells us that even if your heart is now pure, you need to guard it and to keep it pure. 
There's a verse in Proverbs that deals with this matter, which again, you might know well. It's a good text to learn, especially when you're young. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are all the issues of life. Keep your heart, or guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are all the issues of life. In other words, everything in your life will flow from in here. It'll flow from in here. That's why you need to guard in here. Jesus said it's not what comes into a man that defiles him. It's from the heart that proceeds all evil thoughts, adulteries and fornications and murders and thefts and so on. So guard your heart. Everything in life flows from this. That's why Jesus also contrasts the believer with the unbeliever. He says that the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his his heart, brings forth evil things. So there you have a, a converted person. The source of that person's being is his heart. It's got good treasure in it. It is purified. So out of that heart comes his lifestyle, his words, good things. The evil man, and we shouldn't let the word evil mislead us into thinking that it's a particularly bad person, but just simply the godless person, doesn't have this good treasure of grace in his or her heart. And so they just bring forth godless uh, and evil things, speech and conduct that are not Godly, not in accordance with God's law. But we need to keep the heart pure and single in motive because it can become mixed and divided. Jesus warns us about that. Of course, the Ten Commandments warn us about that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me Now, you think to yourself, well, that's a very basic commandment, and surely no Christian would break that commandment. It's so fundamental. It's so fundamental to what we are as Christians that we could never dream of breaking that. How could we have any other gods before him? But I don't know if you remember very, well, just a while back, we we looked at that verse at the end of John's letter, 1 John chapter 5, his closing words in the epistle of love. That's what his first letter is often called. It's called the letter of love, a love letter. The last words were little children. Notice he's talking to Christians here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a strange way to close a letter. What a strange way to close an epistle of love. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, because they attack your love for God. They divide the heart. And Jesus warns us very, very powerfully against that. No man can serve two masters. Notice he's talking about the heart here. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, worldly wealth. You cannot serve God and be covetous at the same time. Make up your mind. Who is it that rules your heart? Is your heart single and pure for God, or is it divided? If it's divided, you'll be lost. That's why the Bible warns us against being double-minded, being two-faced, being double-tongued. 
The double-tongued person and the two-faced person are like that because they've got two hearts. You know, in Psalm 12, when the Bible warns us against a double heart, the Hebrew is interesting. It just says a heart and a heart. That's how it puts it. Two hearts, therefore two-faced and double-tongued. And James has a, a fearful warning against people who are like that. But of course, the Christian can lapse into something like that. Now, what I want to emphasize to you is that there's a clear relationship between having a united heart and making good and godly resolutions. That's what Daniel does here. He makes a resolution. He purposes or he resolves in his heart that he will not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. Do you resolve anything in the Christian life? How strongly do you resolve it? What is the point of a resolution? We're most familiar with resolutions at the time of New Year for some reason. People resolve to do certain things at New Year. But what do you resolve to do as a Christian? Or just any of you, what do you resolve to do? Why should you resolve to do anything? Well, the people who resolve to do things are people who are concerned about their hearts being united before God. Their hearts being pure and their lives being pure, not being double-tongued or two-faced, but single in purpose, having integrity. Integrity comes from the word integer, which is made up of fractions, but the integer is the whole. If you are a man or a woman of integrity, you are whole. Your heart is one. You're not divided. You are dedicated truth unto God. Now, the united heart and the resolve appear together so often in scriptures. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples. Listen to David. Uh, we'll sing these words uh, later, just at the close of the service, but he says in Psalm 119, I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word with my whole heart I did entreat thy face and favor free. Notice just, it's easy to miss that, but notice how the whole heart and the resolve come together. I have resolved that I would keep thy holy word. With my whole heart, I did entreat thy face and favor free. When David was um, rising to power, we're told that 50,000 from the tribe of Benjamin helped David with an undivided heart. Their loyalties were not split between the household of Saul and the household of David, even though they were from the northern tribes themselves. They helped David with an undivided heart. Now, when your heart is united, when you have a clear idea of who you serve and what you're supposed to do, it's easy to purpose something. It's easy to purpose it. It's not so easy to purpose it if your heart isn't united. If your heart is pulling in different directions, you'll hesitate. Let me take some uh, kind of simple example. Um, maybe there's something in your life that you know you ought to do, something you need to get rid of. And you're very slow to commit yourself to it, you see. You may make various noises from time to time about, oh, I wish I was rid of this or I wasn't like that. 
But you're not purposing it, you see. You're not resolving to do it. You're not covenanting. In fact, if I said to you, why don't you covenant with God just to stop that thing? You'd say, no, no, I, I don't want to covenant. And if I was to ask you, why, why do you not want to covenant? Well, I suppose you would try and make your response plausible by saying, well, I'm afraid I might not keep it or I might break it. But really, you don't want to make the resolution or the covenant because you want to leave a little chink. Uh, you don't really want to stop. You don't really want to do it. Your heart's not united. Your heart is divided. But the interesting thing, you see, is that you need to look at it the other way around. A united heart will find it easy to resolve something. But turn that around. Resolving or purposing helps to unite your heart. It helps to unite your heart. Uh, let's take Daniel, for example, supposing for a moment, and I'm only supposing this because I've got no evidence for it, but knowing myself and human nature, it may well be the case. Supposing Daniel's heart is a little bit divided. Suppose he's terrified of the consequences, for example. After all, we looked last week at what some of the possible consequences were. People being hacked to death, limb from limb, and so on. Uh, James Rennick, the uh, last of the covenanters to be executed, was terrified of torture. Terrified of torture. Now, supposing his heart was divided or distracted by the pressure of peers, maybe the amount of Jewish young men who were saying, come on, let's, let's just do this and move on and fight a bigger battle when it comes. Well, Daniel's answer to that, and your answer and my answer, should be to resolve and to purpose to do what's right in order to quell the heart and to quieten it. And to understand that better, I think it's good to look at the word purpose in itself. Daniel purposed in his heart. The expression in the Hebrew is literally this, that Daniel laid it upon his heart not to defile himself. Now, idioms are interesting. Idioms are just the way that we express things, our choice of words. And the, in, the idiom here is interesting. Daniel laid it on his heart. What is interesting about that? Well, it highlights his part in the matter. He takes his duty, which he knows to be right. He takes God's commandment and he deliberately puts it on top of his heart. If you can think of that figure without doing violence to it, it quietens the heart and it quells it. It allows the voice of God to come and to quieten the other voices that may be dividing his heart with a simple thou shalt not. There's a simplicity about God's word and about the way of truth. I think I said that recently in connection with something else, that error is always complex. It's got many faces. But the truth is simple. 
with one face. In fact, the devil's job, and it's a difficult job, is to make what's simple complex and to try and turn you away from what you know to be the right. And I'm sure you've seen that in many walks of life. I mean, something is obviously right, but people end up thinking it's not. But Daniel laid his duty on his own heart. And that's the way it must always be. I referred to the heart a wee while ago as the command center of your being. Uh, But who's going to steer it? You see, what Daniel does here is he takes the word of God and he sends it to the command center of his own heart so that his whole being will be conformed to it. That's a way of saying that Daniel is essentially doing this. I will be governed by this word. I will that my whole being shall be subject to this word. I will ensure that in my feelings, in my thoughts, in my deliberations, I will be subject to the word of God. He lays it on his heart. He makes his heart subject to the word of God. That's why the conscience is the supreme faculty in your inward being. The word of God comes to that part of your noose or your mind that is conscience to discern right from wrong. And you send these messages, immediately you have them to the command center of your heart. So you won't follow your heart, you will instruct your heart. And once you instruct your heart, you will then be moved in the right direction. You mustn't be a victim of thoughts and feelings. You must always subject your heart to the word of God. And the result of that will be that after a while, Daniel won't simply just know what he should do. He'll feel the need to do it, and he'll also desire to do it. He'll be able to say in connection with this great problem, to do thy will I take delight, O thou my God that art. I take delight. And it doesn't matter how difficult the will of God will be for you. If you've laid that on your heart, your heart will be subject to it. Every part of your being will be dedicated to doing the will of God. And that is a wonderful thing because you've achieved a united heart. A united heart subject to the word of God. Do we not even have an example? And here we have to be a little bit careful because our Lord is not a sinner. And our Lord's heart was never divided in the sense that, I'm, that I've spoken about earlier. But nonetheless, I think it's useful, with that caveat in mind, to think of the Lord himself. Do we not have an example of this in the life of the sinless Christ, the Holy One? In Gethsemane, he knows the will of God. But he prays if it is possible. Let this cup pass from me. But he lays the duty on his heart. He lays it heavily on his own heart. And when he's finished praying, I've commented before that the sweat is gone, the agony is gone, the crying and the tears have gone. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And when he's finished with his prayer, There's no trace that he was ever in a conflict at all. Well, maybe 
literally or physically there may be a trace, maybe the blood was visible on his face, I don't know. But the point is that it's a very calm and majestic Christ that exits the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you noticed that? It's a very calm and majestic Christ that exits the Garden. There is a universe of a difference between the man who was prostrate on the ground praying that if it was possible, the cup would pass from him, and the man who strides out and says, I am he, take me up to the cross. Because he laid the will of God on his heart. That quelled his heart, gave him peace. Any sense of looking for another way is gone. He is entirely dedicated with a single heart to the will of God. So if we practice laying God's will on our heart, we'll do the right thing and we'll do it cheerfully. We'll do it cheerfully. We become men and women of integrity. And we won't make a fuss about it. I mean, we'll see tonight that Daniel didn't make a fuss about it, at least in the sense in which I mean it, making a a big hoo-ha about it. Didn't draw attention to himself. But we'll do it. We'll do it. Lay your duty on your heart. And for young people particularly, it's important that you do that. I mean, if you're going to start out on life, start out right. And start out with a resolve to do the right. Lay the word of God on your heart. Lay it on your heart always to be obedient to it when you know it. Make it your business to know it. Make it your business to know the will of God. And when you know it, do it. Resolve always to do it. Now, the, the resolve that I'm speaking of here and that the Bible speaks of here is something that you need right through your Christian life. In fact, you need it to begin the Christian life. And then you need it to continue the Christian life. To, to begin the Christian life, you've got to lay something on your heart, have you not? You've got to lay on your heart to follow the Lord. You need to resolve that. You need to resolve to do it. You need to purpose it. Now, that's critically important because there's still this lingering thought in many people's minds that you can't do that, that you can't resolve or you can't decide. The word decide has become so associated with decisionism, so associated with the idea that you can, you can, you can just simply decide by flicking a switch But we can't lose a good word because of the abuse of it. You must decide to follow Jesus if you're going to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that phrase. Nothing at all. You must purpose to follow the Lord. Your heart may be divided, pulled in different directions, but you need to lay the crushing weight of obedience upon it. You need to lay it upon your heart on top of all these competing desires that you will follow the Lord. You need to resolve to do it. Elijah said to the people on the top of Mount Carmel, how long will you linger between two opinions? How long are you going to do it? And he spoke that to the ordinary people, the people who were aware of the religion of the true God, 
which was in their past and represented still by the prophet Elijah in front of them. They were also aware of the mixed mongrel religion that Abel, Ahab and Jezebel had introduced. And Elijah is saying to him, you can't go along with the flow. You can't keep attending the temple here where the prophets of Jehovah mingle freely with the prophets of Baal. You, you can't do it. You've got to decide. Who's going to rule this country? Is it God's word or is it just a heathen, idolatrous king? What are you going to have as a people? What are you going to put up with? What are you going to live with yourself and your families and your children and your children's children? You yourselves decide this day. Will you serve God or will you serve Baal? And of course, in the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said that at Shechem when the covenant was being renewed, uh, when Israel were entering into, fully into the promised land, and, and he saw the difficulties ahead, and he was exhorting them never to go back to the idolatrous ways that they'd left behind. Don't go back. Go forward. Resolve to go forward. As for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're doing. You need to resolve that yourself. Forget about your friends. Forget about your peers. Forget about the pressures. Forget what other people are doing. Forget about what other people are doing in your own house. Just forget it. You need to resolve and to lay it upon your own disturbed, divided heart that you will follow the Lord. And when you take such a decision in the fear of the Lord, your heart will quieten. You will have a united heart. You will discover that you are pure in heart indeed. You need a resolution to follow the Lord. You need to res a resolution. You also need a resolution when major decisions come your way in the Christian life and when there are strong temptations to do the contrary because following Christ is not the last big decision you take. And sometimes these resolutions or purposes need to harden up into covenants. The more serious a situation, the more you need a covenant. You remember when John Knox was being persuaded just to return one more time to Scotland by the nobles. He effectively wrote back and said, no, he said, not this time, not unless you covenant and send me your covenant. And the nobles this time entered into a covenant with each other in which they pledged themselves to one another, to God, to establish the Reformed faith. And when John Knox saw that, he said, okay, I'll come over. What does a covenant do? Well, it just pledges yourself. Pledges yourself before God. It, it takes a, if, if I can use the word, it takes a kind of resolution you've got and it firms it up. It takes a desire and hardens it into a res resolution, hardens it further into a real commitment and drive. If you pick up biographies of good and godly men and women right up until, let's say, the end of the 19th century, you'll find that their lives are full of covenants. Full of covenants and full of resolutions, and then it disappears. Have you ever wondered why it disappears? And have you ever wondered what the relationship just might be between uh, covenanted people who covenanted themselves to each other and covenanted themselves to God and a godly society and an ineffective 
weak church that never covenants to each other and doesn't covenant to God. There is a relationship. People who covenant are serious about what they're doing. They're serious about what they're doing. They sign their names before God. They vow. They commit. Can I take one example for you? I'll take the example of a man called Jonathan Edwards. I'll come back to him tonight, actually. Jonathan Edwards um, is reckoned today to have been probably America's most able philosopher. That's not how we know him. We know him as a preacher and a theologian. We know him as the preacher of the Great Awakening in the 18th century in America, a friend of George Whitfield's, a graduate of Yale and a president of Princeton. He and his wife, Sarah, who had 11 children, were both outstanding Christians. There is really no doubt concerning that. It was, it was acknowledged even by his enemies that they were both outstanding Christians. Um, before I turn to what I want to really say about him, it occurred to me in preparing this sermon that I had read in the past how, how God had blessed that family. And I thought it was worth just including that for you. Some of you may know this. But I think it's worth emphasizing. They raised their family in a, in a particular way, and they were good and godly people. Within 150 years of Jonathan Edwards' death, okay, now let this register, within 150 years of his death, their direct descendants, okay, not relations or connections, but their direct descendants included one vice president, three American senators, three American governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 65 professors, 80 holders of public office, and 100 missionaries of the gospel. Isn't that astonishing? Isn't that utterly astonishing? But for our purpose... What I want to know is the real secret of his life. I know, of course, that we could put that in many ways. Obviously, he was dedicated to the Lord. But to go back behind that, the real secret of his life and his wife's too is that they were people of resolve. They were people who knew how to purpose and to covenant before God. Jonathan Edwards used to be quite well known for his famous resolutions. He made 70 of them before he was 20. And one of his resolutions was to visit his resolutions every week and to see how he kept them. And he did, right up into his 70s. A young man resolving. I'll just give you five examples of his resolutions. I resolved never, and he made these before he was 20. I resolved never to give over or in the least slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. I resolved never to do anything in soul or body but what tends to the glory of God. I resolved never to do anything but my duty, and to do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord. I resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it would be the last hour of my life, 
I resolved to inquire every night wherein I have been negligent and what sin I have committed and whether I acted in the best way I could with respect to eating and drinking. These are just some examples. I mentioned how God blessed his seed, very evidently so, but there is a connection. There is a connection. The fact is that people who resolve and covenant are people who grow in self-control and in Christian strength. People who fail to resolve and covenant just muddle their way through their Christian life, almost with a sense of victimhood. I really want to urge that upon you. Resolve and covenant does make a difference. It may be the answer to something in your own life that you really need to purpose and to resolve. Now, I want to close this morning by just emphasizing, before we look at what Daniel actually does, we'll see that tonight, how he deals with the situation, but I want to to borrow the last verse of the chapter into what I, I want to say right now. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a strange verse to find where you find it. The first year of King Cyrus takes us beyond the fall of the Babylonian Empire and into the empire of the Medes and the Persians. In fact, the first year of King Cyrus takes you up to when Daniel is around about 80, 81 years of age. The big question is, why stick that verse in there? It's so out of place. It's so out of place. Unless, unless we're meant to understand that the key to this long, successful, prosperous, God-fearing life, that the key to it is found in this decision that he took as a young man, And if that's so, then the verse is very definitely not out of place. The key to his life is that he was able to purpose in his heart. Uh, we, We need men and women of resolve and purpose. Men and women who are able to covenant with God fearlessly. Men and women who hold themselves to account, who are accountable to each other and have a sense of accountability to God. We need that. We need that. We need to pray for that. To push each other towards that. Daniel was that kind of man. Now, it isn't just what you do, it's the way that you do it. And uh, Daniel doesn't just have to purpose the right thing in his heart. He's got to work out how he's going to do it in his life. Uh, God willing, we'll turn to that tonight. May the Lord bless our thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, a God of great grace and mercy, enable us to serve you with a whole heart. That we could say with David too, with my whole heart I did entreat thy face and favor free. We read of Caleb too that he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Grant us such a heart. We ask your blessing upon us 
throughout the remainder of the day, that we might keep it to your praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, our last uh, singing is Psalm 119 on page 404. And we sing to the tune Spore. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord, I have resolved and said that I would keep thy holy word. With my whole heart I did entreat thy face and favor free, according to thy gracious word, be merciful to me. We'll sing four stanzas, 57 to 60. Let's stand to sing. Before we close with the benediction, I, I noticed after giving the intimations, I didn't pick up on before that the Samari class is on today. Is that right? Are you expecting the class? Okay, the, the Samari class is on at uh, quarter to five in the lower hall. That's just to help with congregational singing in an informal setting, so you're very welcome uh, to come along to that. Let's uh, receive God's benediction.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.